I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop, where this evening we're delighted to welcome Ian Sinclair to talk about his latest book, American Smoke, published by Hamish Hamilton. It's the third part of a loose trilogy of topographical ruminations that began with Hackney, that rose-red empire, and ghost milk. In this latest volume, Ian follows the traces of the writers of the American beat generation, Kerouac, Burroughs, and Malcolm Lowry, amongst others. In conversation with Ian this evening is publisher and curator Gareth Evans, who, amongst other things, is currently film curator at the Whitechapel Gallery. The talk will last approximately 40 to 45 minutes. There'll be time for questions at the end. I'll be around with the microphone, so please do raise your hands and we'll try and fit everybody in. Um, there's also a lot of books on sale this evening, including a beautifully produced limited edition of American Smoke. We don't have that on the shop floor, but I do have a leaflet here. There are plenty here. If you'd like to see a copy, please let me know at the end of the event. And without the way, please join me in a very warm welcome for Ian Sinclair and Gareth Evans. Thank you very much. <laughs> <coughs> Uh, many thanks indeed, Claire, and thanks to everyone here at the London Review Bookshop um, for putting on this event and for asking me to be involved in moderation and conversation with Ian, um, which, of course, is a very uh, pleasurable and easy job to undertake, um, given the richness of the material we're about to encounter. Um, there's a classical, mythic sense uh, underpinning, I think, both this evening, but also the book, of course, we're about to discuss. Um, Ian, of course, needs no introdu introduction to London Review Bookshop uh, visitors or to readers of the August Journal, because... Many of the uh, portraits um, that we're about to encounter in American Smoke, a number at least, have been road-tested in the pages of the journal. But, of course, the LRB is a mythic, a mythic structure. It's a mythic shop. It's celebrating its 10th anniversary this year. The journal has origins lost deep in time. But the mythic underpinnings I'm thinking about are more Homeric, really. They're, they go back to the, to the classical realm, and not least because um, this publication is the 18th that Ian has published this year. And so it's a, bit, a little bit like the Hydra. You buy one and another 17 pop up to replace the one you've just bought. Um, so that's, that's one aspect of the classical project uh, on display today. But um, more interestingly, of course, is the Homeric hymn, the, 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 the ode, the song to the voyage and the quest. And, Ian, perhaps that's where we could start because all your books uh, are in some senses voyages and quests. You said those are the two journeys that are worth taking. But here there really is a... Uh, a, a transmarine, a transatlantic journey that links um, some of the sources of your, of your inspiration with your life here in London. Yeah, I was thinking when we were chatting <coughs> beforehand, the, 
the excitement of a particular period in the 1960s, which is when I first came to live in London, mm. the engagement that there was between the United States and Britain and between Britain and Europe. Mm. There were real bridges. It, was, it <coughs> didn't need to be <coughs> politically laid out or affiliated or spoken of. They were there in terms of the human cargoes that passed backwards and forwards. Mm. So, so a lot of the, the, the big American writers, people like Charles Olson, were doing a lot of research in somewhere like Dorchester going out to Maiden Castle, mm. spending long afternoons in strange provincial English hotels doing the Times crossword puzzle and playing the jukebox, and all that was sopping up, while at the same time, the young, sharp, bright English people were going off to Gloucester, Massachusetts. Someone like Jeremy Prynne was uh, actually lodged in Olson's house, his flat there, mm. looking out over the inner harbour, and was providing him with the tools whereby to carry out this research. Mm. And I think we lost that. So the, the metaphor I planted in the first page of the book um, goes back to a, a fairly mythical figure called Prince Henry Sinclair, who apparently went from the Orkneys mm. in, 13th, in the 14th century to America voyaging, island hopping all the way along, mm -hmm. and left his legend with the, <coughs> the Indians who, who uh, surround Gloucester uh, uh, as a figure called Glooscap, who becomes this mm. tall, legendary figure. And I saw him stepping on the backs of whales all across mm -hmm. the Atlantic. And then we lost that, that, that broke. And we became a sort of strange client state. We became like a, an aircraft carrier. And everything mm -hmm. went sour. And I didn't really want to go into those territories until quite recently mm -hmm. it became obligatory, in a sense, to launch again, launch new, you know, as, as a, an old person. I like that idea. Mm -hmm. I've never worked so hard as this year. It's killing, you know. I made the terrible mistake of taking on this 70 film <coughs> program for my yeah, we'll come 70th on to that. birthday. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> uh, and as you say, I was doing a talk as a part of this, and somebody like you, not as well informed, got up to make the introductory speech and was kind of was reading something from Wikipedia or whatever and said, you know, I, I believe you've, you have written in your life a lot of books. I think you've, you've actually written 18 books. I said, well, yes, this year. <laughs> so this is quite shameful in a sense. It's incontinent. But it, it did remind me of um, Anthony Burgess because one of the first talks I gave in this was, was up in Manchester. And it was really good to be there. And it was in an Anthony Burgess centre. And beforehand, they took me around. And I s there were two really interesting things. One, um, all the books that he'd reviewed were, were shelved up. And one of, the, one of these was um, my first sort of large novel, which was called Down River, mm. which he'd reviewed and was fairly scathing about. And I saw with interest that he'd only read about seven pages. <laughs> and he'd also reviewed uh, Pynchon's Gravity's Rainbow, which was, uh, they had a proof copy that was completely misbound, and, the, and there, was, there was another book slipped into it, and it was a complete shambles, but he'd still reviewed it <laughs> very well, off about 20 pages. <laughs> And the final thing was the, all his typewriters, they, they, they just uh, astonished, there were a stack of these uh, portable typewriters in a glass cabinet, really, really beautiful. So um, recently there's been a series of installations and curations in Stoke Newington and the old Sea mm. Cadets building by Test Centre, who, who are wonderfully active, bright mm. young publishers mm. in Hackney. And uh, I was curating some archive stuff there, and, and there was a space left. And I suddenly thought, <coughs> I could put an old typewriter in there. 
And I, I got back home, and uh, my wife was in the process of clearing the shed, and it was going into the skip, so I could rescue this thing, wrestled it in there, and uh, it was be beautiful, lit up. And um, they said, well, do you want to sell it? Because Mags Brothers, he's very top of the market antiquarian <laughs> book dealers, bought this ancient typewriter. And so that's all down to the Manchester Anthony Burgess. And Anthony Burgess, when he wrote all these books in one year, was apparently dying. Right. He had this notion, which is something writers occasionally invent as a good as a good ploy to buy time. And you write four or five books in a year, and it works. And then you you live on for another fifty odd years afterwards. Well, you do speculate, of course, in American Smoke that Robert Bellagno um, yeah. probably isn't dead because he's producing um, at such a rate still. Spiritually and metaphorically, I'm sure he's alive. Very much so. He's, he's deeply alive to me. And, and his presence is one of the strands I, I tease mm. through this book because he fictionalized the lives of those American poets. Olson turns up in his mm. uh, Nazi Writers in America uh, series where he writes fictional, quasi-fictional biographies of a series of people. And it was the idea that someone could take poetry as the abiding essence of a life and a way of dealing with a culture and mm. turn it into a sort of detective story made me use the same process and turn it on on Bellano and to to try and revisit where he'd lived and 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 what you're revisiting is a written a written mm. landscape rather than an actual landscape but it's just as real and i i really do believe that digression is the quickest path to get to the truth mm. uh, and that with him you see that and uh, when the book ends by in on the south coast of england discovering there is somewhere called America Ground in Hastings, that mm. actually this bunch of people, libertarians and anarchists and lowlife who are living in upturned boats and things, chose to become a state of America when they were threatened with clearance by the local landlords and authorities. They said, we are an American state. Mm -hmm. And they had an American flag with the shield of Hastings on it. And they stayed there for an extra seven years till they were cleared away. And I thought, this is, this is perfect. The whole thing comes back to your own doorstep. And it was like William Blake's America a Prophecy, as if America was this prophetic land that you wanted to get to. So um, when I'm told that I, I, you know, I, I'm not, I can't do narrative or narrative is mm. not part of the, the matter, I, I would say... Uh, that that is simply not true yeah. because the, what, what you're doing with narrative is working much more in terms of architecture and shape, that the book divides up through Jungian archetypes, essentially, that the first movement of the book are these large male embattled figures, um, culturally disaffiliated, disaffected, but very important, Olsen, uh, Kerouac, and so on. Then the second book, you move away to through, through an old lady living in South London called Muriel Walker who'd had a wonderful, fantastic life uh, as an, a Jewish orphan from the East End I involved with all kinds of left-wing politics, a friend of the writer Andrew Alexander Barron. And then she gets caught up in the Italian film industry uh, on an Anna Magnani film that's shot on a volcanic island. And all, all of this extraordinary story, which seems like a digression, is really very firmly embedded in the idea of volcano chasing specific landscapes that we look for. And then that whole second movement then is this very much around the, the female archetype. Mm. And by the third book, you're going backwards and forwards by young male and female coming together, separating, splitting, getting lost. And in the last book, the elderly versions of the same thing 
come together and journey together and launch out on a new Homeric voyage. So all that is really constructed and intended, Absolutely. and it, it, you know, it isn't just thrown together. It's not a beat memoir, mm. because the beats are now sort of like the Bloomsbury group or the mm. craze. They're, they're a heavy industry. Um, and you you can't do another yet another history. I mean, the, when you come to the point where Daniel Radcliffe, as Harry Potter, is playing Allen Ginsberg <laughs> in a in a sort of gay campus romance, you, you it's moved to a place that is almost beyond resolution. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I still would like to try and resolve it all the same. Yeah. No, very much so. I mean, you mentioned Wales earlier, and and uh, um, the. Uh, uh, the ancestor Sinclair, shall we say, um, stepping on the backs of those cetaceans to get to the New World. But of course, if we think about the other whales, um, that's where you come from, South Wales. And my steg, which Robert Frank photographed, yeah. and that finds its way into the pages as well. But could you just take us back to the beginning, if you like, when you were a student and when certain books were purchased by you and your friend Chris Bamford at the same time in different places and became kind of wormholes into this projected space of America and the possibility it offered? against what was then a very limited vision of, that the, the, the English cultural landscape offered. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that, that analogy of the wormhole thing, I think, is, is very true. <coughs> there, w there was such a, a sense of excitement in that period because it was coming out of um, such ignorance. You know, the, 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 the first pre-war period felt, which I was a child in and growing up out of, felt so clamped down and closed and, and mm -hmm. localised in lots of ways. And the, the, the writing was very much class-based that was here. We, we, were, we were seeing social satire. We were seeing aggrieved, ego-led narratives that were about people who were having a bad time because they couldn't get off with the industrialist's daughter and, you know, all, the, all this stuff. And then once they'd got it, they, they retreated to the country to large houses, and then it became novels about divorce and drinking. And I... You know, I, I wanted something with a larger reach, and then sort of coming across in Dublin, uh, Charles Olson's Distances, found in a, in, in a, a, a department store on Grafton Street, and, and you know, just astonishing. Mm -hmm. And two of us found the same thing the same day and rushed back with this strange material and, and launched a sort of quest, I suppose, to, mm -hmm. to see where that came from, what it, what it involved and what the methods were, that, mm. that the idea of open field poetics was very exciting. It was mm. the idea that you would do an enormous <coughs> amount of work and research, but at the end of the day, you were still pushed to get it onto the, onto the sort of Homeric curves, to bring it all back to myth and legend and, and quite simple, powerful truths that related to your own biology and your own body. Mm. Um, and, and that I found there, which I wasn't finding here. Mm. But on the other hand, I, I didn't go to those landscapes. Uh, the accidents of a life bedded me down in East London, which was more than enough to deal with. I mean, just working, surviving, being, reading a city. And yet those things still haunted. And mm. it, was, it felt very good at the, the moment when I wanted to step away from the local, which I felt was so changed, I needed to think about it in a different way, into this other landscape. This was exactly right to go back into this and make a voyage. I keep mm. going back. It is that, it is that thing of, of the voyage where you, you meet monsters along the way, some in your past, uh, some, some in your future. Uh, there are great encounters like Particularly, I suppose, the highlight was seeing Gary Snyder, who was, mm. in terms of a voyage, here he is in the forest, high, high, 
high above in the Sierra Nevada, um, completely alone um, and very demanding in, in how he would conduct uh, an interview, mm. that you had to arrive absolutely on the dot, that uh, the, the principles of his uh, Buddhist life were embedded, and then what, what was the nature of our conversation? It wasn't as easy as talking to you. You know, it was like, what do you want from me out of this? And, mm -hmm. and what I wanted was to make a book. Um, the, the writing of the book was the make finding out of what the book was about. I couldn't really say that to him. Mm. So it became quite challenging, but also incredibly exciting. And I've kind of, could I read just a little? Yeah, of course. Yeah. This, is, this is a little, and, and also I wanted to read that bit because the LRB magazine were, were generous enough to, to commission that encounter with, with Gary Snyder, which helped to, to make the journey possible for me. And uh, the, the bit I'm going to read is when we were, after we'd got through this initial phase, um, Gary started to talk about what was going on in London. We discussed Edgelands. He had seen photographs of the huts of the Manor Garden allotments in the lower Lee Valley in East London before they disappeared to make way for our great Olympic Park. It's money for basically nothing, he said. This is the global against the local, absolutely. Semi-urban wilderness is valuable. What about Epping Forest? Have they left any of that? Epping Forest is too valuable to touch. It was touching to have Gary Snyder take notice of developments in Hackney, to see him align the enclosures with the grander landscape sweeps in Canada and Alaska and California. And he spoke of his love of John Clare, the badger being one of his great marker poems. Driving down to his academic work at UC Davis, Snyder noticed another kind of urban edgeland. There's a big rice field flooded paddy near Sacramento Airport. It used to have a sign on it saying, this field annually feeds 40,000 people, and that's export only. There are a billion people in China. The Japanese don't import so much rice. They've got their own subsidized industry but they import wheat from Canada, and it goes out through Vancouver. But we're re-inhabiting the land, Snyder said, his pinkies horizontal as he lifted a small cup between his two hands. This was a high-priority place to live for the Indians. They were wiped out. There's only a few left. They're, but they're still around, though. The valley is all marsh and wetlands. They go down there for the fishing and for the duck. The valley is covered in tule fog for quite a few weeks in the winter. It's very chilly. It's sunny up here. We're at the snow line. Higher up, there are deer all season. So the original inhabitants made their living in the rather benign foothills, cooler than the valley, too. This is a benign place to live. Gary, they say, was wild if you caught him at the right time. There's been a lot of photographs over the years, from beards and sandals to black collarless jackets and motorbikes to alpine sunglasses against high peaks, a confident artisan of language, ripe with paradox, monkish austerities, early libidinous pleasures, bathing pools and parties, as Kerouac reports, where San Francisco dignitaries, scholars, and art patrons were entranced by the Marin County retreat in their naked hosts, Ginsburg, Orlovsky, and Snyder. The stud in his left ear still strikes a jaunty note, narrowed eyes, thin spectacles, perched on creased brow. 
the years press down a little, rounding out the shoulders under that dark blue shirt as we walk across to inspect the library in the converted barn. But the stride is sure. Snyder is undeceived. He was tempted to use horses to pull the logs, but thought better of it. You can't live on this ridge without cars. Nobody can afford to become a farmer. You have to inherit the land. When the young folk come down from these hills, they just go to Portland and retire. Re-inhabiting and bio-visionary ideas are useful and practical and brilliant, but they don't catch on. It's not for the time. You can't sell voluntary simplicity to people. And that's what we're talking about, voluntary simplicity, or in some cases, downward mobility. The barn, open to daylight, is stacked with information, with books organized and not fetishized. Snyder stressed again, I'm a, not a prose writer, I'm a poet. And that means when it hits me, I scribble a few things. And when I do my organized editing and classifying, I do it here and mostly in the morning, but not real early, because the first thing I do is that I meditate. Chatting with this man, hands in pockets, Emmy, his dog, rubbing against his thigh, we appreciate that we've taken up enough of his program day. The long drive down 101, which will continue to San Francisco and then Los Angeles, has been about placing this meeting. We confront one another like polite but road-weary strangers in the middle of nowhere, nodding across red formica in some big breakfast bar, big U.S. flag outside, convenience stores shuttered along with a brass-plated bang. There's a piece in Danger on Peaks that's set on the road that we will drive. Snyder's sister, Anthea Corin Snyder-Lowry, noticed a pickup truck ahead of her had lost a grass mower from the back. She pulled onto the shoulder and walked right out into the lane to take it off. That's always been her way. Struck by a speedy car, an instant death. You took us to the West Coast there with Gary Schneider uh, as opposed to Olson's Massachusetts. And if one thinks of another uh, West Coast writer, Raymond Carver, a short poem of his exhorts us all to put it all in, to make use of everything that you might come across, your own life, the traces, the evidence, and so on. And Olson, of course, in a very different register, as also is Schneider, they do exactly that. They create this this multifarious, multi-headed form that can accommodate everything in a way of the Maximus poems, of course, of Olson being a, the primary foundational example. But that space of America <coughs> and, and you, the idea of writing as territory that you mentioned earlier was, of course, hugely attractive, as you said. But in terms of then visiting that space and actualizing it, making it real, driving the miles and, and eating at the diners, was there uh, 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 there's obviously a very productive creative tension in that because it led to the book, but what was, the, what was the reality of that for you in terms of the imagined space? The, the only reality of it at all was writing the book. Mm. The actual experience was totally unreal. It was, it was uh, dreamlike because w we projected these landscapes and places for so many years, seen so many films, read so many books, that that thing of driving is impossible. I mean, the, the drive itself had to become a film before it could become a drive. So that initially... Um, my wife was would drive the first couple of hours, and I was <coughs> I was filming it, which has some of that has been downloaded onto an interactive uh, version of the map mm. now, which very nicely by by Penguin. Um, and the reality was the was walking as always for me. So mm. so I invented um, a technique whereby <coughs> I tried to reclaim the landscape 
that, that Albert Speer touched on his, in his insane project when he was in Spandau prison in, in Berlin, and there were only two of them left. He, he was doing this project of measuring precisely his walk around the prison yard uh, by transferring beams from one pocket to another, measuring the length of his shoe, seeing exactly how far he'd walked, and translating that into real-world geography. So he got all mm. the maps, and he then, in his own head, walked from Berlin across Germany, across Russia, yeah. the Bering Straits, and he's coming down America. So he's walking through the same landscape I'm walking. And he's writing vivid accounts of this and, and producing a sort of insane epic novel, which mm. was a, a model in a sense that I wanted to unpick and take out that sort of darkness of Europe and, and take it back by, by actually walking in the landscape. Mm. So every morning, wherever I was, <coughs> I walked <coughs> for the same two hours or whatever he'd walked around, just in a literally a circle, around these various towns and settlements wherever we were. So essentially that was the much more the essence of the project, was, mm. was the walking part of it. And then I, I found that all of the large figures I was interested in also had this idea of the, the epic walk, that the landscape leads mm. itself to that. Gary Snyder, very early on, writes about how he felt strongly uh, when he's on an oil tanker that he wants, when he gets ashore, to get up to Seattle, where he's, he'd grown up on a stump farm, and walk right down the coast to San Francisco. He wanted to walk it. He never, he never actually did walk all of it, but that was what he felt the shape should be. Mm. There's a moment when <coughs> Kerouac, who's in Mexico City, believes that I instead of being on the road in on the cars at Hill Cassidy, he wants to walk back to New York, and he starts off, and he actually walks towards the border. Mm. So, so, so those walks are just embedded in the, in the American consciousness. Uh, and the model for Gary Snyder, and one I, I draw on, is uh, Cabeza de Vaca, the, the Spaniard who ends up wrecked, shipwrecked in, in Florida in the 1620s, and, and uh, most of his compatriots die, and mm. he, he's, he's absolutely naked, and he, he gets involved with the various Native American groups because he, he cures somebody who's ill by praying over them. He, they, he's taken to be a shaman, and they, they follow him, and he, he walks all the way from Florida to Mexico, and that was Snyder's model. He keeps referring back to that, mm. and other figures refer back constantly to John Ledyard, who, who was an American who decided he was going to walk across Europe to the Bering Straits, etc. Well, all of that I knew. What I didn't know was that this was William Burroughs' dream, because you don't just think of Burroughs as being somebody who walks, mm. other than on small trajectories around cities with a snooping camera or whatever. So uh, maybe I read a, just a yeah, again yeah, a little yeah. fragment of, of Burroughs, because uh, that, that took me quite by surprise, that he fitted with this pattern. Burroughs made several entries in his dream <coughs> diaries, noting how the European cities of the past were grafted onto the American wilderness, like Kerouac in 1947 and Snyder in 1957, Burroughs saw himself trudging impossible miles on nightmare journeys through real but transposed continents. Nazi coins made into blind spectacles badged him through sinister frontiers. Uh, I should just say what that reference is. This was, I was in a place called the Sylvia Hotel in Vancouver, which is one of those great ghost hotels, uh, really much more resonant than the Chelsea Hotel. It's a, still a functioning place. 
And it's exactly where Malcolm Lowry, when he was at the Burrowed Inlet in his squatter's hut, used to meet Dylan Thomas when he was on his reading tours and they would drink. Well, I, we were staying there and I'd met uh, the writer William Gibson, who was uh, very, very pertinent and sharp on all of this. And he told me that when Burroughs came through there for the last time, he also stayed in this hotel. And they, they had a, a rather terrible meal downstairs. And then they went upstairs and Burroughs offered him a pharmaceutical pickup of, any, of his own choice. And he s did the thing that police always do. He excused himself to go into the bathroom and have a poke around and see what's really going on. And he found a sort of strange kit. And he found an old elastoplast tin. And he couldn't resist looking inside it. And inside it were these two black coins which had Nazi insignia on. I thought, this is beyond weird. And so when he got the chance, he talked to one of the young men who was in around with, with Burroughs. And he says, what, what is that about? And he said, well, Bill takes this tin everywhere. And uh, when he dies, he wants these coins to be put into his eyes. So <laughs> I thought, that's pretty good. So that's the Nazi spectrums. <coughs> Uh, Bill said, I've walked across Siberia. It took me two months. I had to kill five people. New York is gone. I was astonished to see how closely the somatic diary of the beat senior citizen with his cats and his canes duplicated the model for the looped walks I was trying to undertake every morning of our Pacific Rim trip as a way of rolling up the deranged invasion path tramped and recorded by Albert Speer in the prison garden at Spandau. I have, it seems, walked across the Bering Strait, Burroughs wrote, across Siberia and northern Europe. Speer, Hitler's architect of ruins, successfully concluded a trial hike from Berlin to Heidelberg and set out through the long years of his imprisonment, having confirmed the length of his stride, to calculate the pedestrian progress across Germany, Siberia, and the Bering Straits to America, then down the Pacific coast to Mexico, achieving 35 kilometers south of Guadalajara before they let him out into an afterlife of self-justifying interviews. His activities were viewed with a disdain by his fellow prisoners, a numbered rump of high Nazi officials, admirals, diplomats, delusionists, who were fortunate to escape the noose after the Nuremberg trials. The last prisoners left, numbers not names, were the compulsive fugue walker Speer, sweating out his swollen fantasies, and Rudolf Hess, the deputy leader of the party, survivor of a brain-cracked flight to Britain. Their relationship, hostile, jealous of history, a grudging alliance of shared solitude, was Beckettian and absurd, a pacer of dirt circuits and a watcher in the long coat, a madman or cynical sage. But it was Hess, the witness, who suggested the beams, that Speer should measure each circuit achieved by shifting a beam from one pocket to another like a cricket umpire or like one of Beckett's Cartesian pebble suckers on an Irish strand. My memory loss was faked, Hess boasted, faking it again for Speer, the ultimate faker, the man who almost convinced himself. I mean, you mentioned the Vancouver Hotel among many other things, but that's another kind of wormhole, isn't it? We have the books that are purchased at the same time. We have dates and venues that become portals into other spaces. And the book, as, <coughs> you, as you rightly said, is incredibly tightly structured, and its narrative is just differently told. As Godard said, we have the beginning, the middle, and an end, but not necessarily in that <laughs> yeah. order. 
And so the book itself is, is, is riddled with a, with a labyrinthine network of associations. And, and with the nat- nature, in the nature, as Polano uh, said, all, all, all English writers <coughs> aspire to write detective stories. And mm. You know, in a sense, this is true. This is, this is a detective story. And he, mysteriously, is one of the... the cr- I think he and Malcolm Lowry, in different ways, are the guides. Malcolm mm. Lowry guiding into the days of the dead and the past and, and almost rewriting his own novels repeatedly till he can't go on any longer. Mm. Whereas Bolano leads, leads a, a, a magical uh, tour that, that finishes up. When I, when I, I meet somebody in Highgate who, who, who starts telling me about knowing him and, and being astonished that he was a writer. You know, he seemed to be almost a derelict, a down and out on the edge of this group of exiles who met in Barcelona and mm. drank, and he was very interested in comics and so on. And then suddenly he reemerges with these huge epic novels that, that achieve world fame. Uh, and yet th- he didn't see it. And yet he, he could give me the address of a couple of people who were friends of his, and they were, they were reluctant to, to talk or reveal anything. But one, one guy, Rodrigo Frizan, sent me this novel he'd written uh, about London. Mm. And it was set around J.M. Barry and Kensington Gardens. And I, very, very extraordinary. And then after I'd read that, he said, did you realize that I and my wife are two characters in Bolano's novel, uh, 2666? And I said, no. And he said, we're in it. So then I realized that actually the books are as much of a geography as the world, and mm-hmm. possibly more so. So I, I immediately go to this book, and I find this scene in Kensington Gardens. And sure enough, this character is referenced. He's there, and his wife is there. And there's a third party in the garden who is called Norton. And this kind of gives me something of a chill, because I have a kind of alter ego character called Norton, mm-hmm. who uh, was in a book called Slow Chocolate Autopsy, who is able to move through time but not through place. He's a prisoner of London. He can never escape. And this character is stolen <coughs> by me from William Burroughs. It's the beginning of Junkie, uh, you know, the, the first sentence. This rather sleazy character called Norton turns up and introduces Burroughs to Junk and so initiates that whole process. And my Norton is goes through various sleazy adventures until he's picked up by Alan Moore and becomes a character in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. So the, you know, the, the, the lives beyond the lives, the lives that are in books are quite extraordinary. And to find this person turning up in, in London in this novel is exactly the first sentence that's in Slow Chocolate Autopsy is that Norton was present in the garden. You know, so uh, all of that, very odd. And then um, I thought this is a very, very convincing portrait of London, very detailed. And I, 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 and I said, yes, yes, right down to a description of an angel tree in, in Kensal Green Cemetery where there's a statue with the... So that's quite familiar. And then I realized that actually it's a photograph that Mark Atkins took, which I pointed him at, in a book called Slow Chocolate Autopsy. And he said, yes, that's where I got it from. And, and I said, oh, my God. And so I said, well, how did you get this incredible sense of life? He said, well, yeah, when I was in London, I stayed in a Novotel alongside Heathrow Airport. I never went anywhere near London. I just got a suitcase of books and swallowed it all up, and that became London. And then I realized, that, well, what the hell was I spending my time charging about America for? You know, I could have just stuck with the suitcase of books that I started with and <laughs> conjured the whole thing out of that. So the two processes are going on side by side. And it was a, it was a beautiful lesson at the end. And in, the sen- in that sense, 
Balana was still alive and was teaching the final lesson, and he kind of dissolves away. And uh, the book ends with the, the figure of the Andrew Cotting, the filmmaker who, who had accompanied me on a swan voyage, swan pedalo voyage from um, Hastings to, to Hackney. At the beginning of the book, which I step away from to, to go off to America, full circle, and, and Andrew sets off swimming, as he says, down to Cornwall and leaves his boots and his bag on the shore. So mm. I th th there is a kind of beautiful circularity mm. to the autumn sea and the, that moment of storms that comes round both ways. Thank you, and just before we open it out, I mean, I, if I could I'm just... Oh, sorry, can I just... Yeah, one fi final last yeah, yeah, yeah. quote. is the quote that, that I suddenly find in, in uh, Balano, um, which is... Um, I would never get on a pedal boat built to look like a swan, Roberto Polano. <laughs> so we're clearly in the presence of larger forces here. And coincidence is where you start. I mean, that, that's like... Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is what Rodrigo Brezan said. You know, this, this is it. This is, this is only the starting point. And if these coincidences do not occur, you're in the wrong place. Because it turned out he, the book he was now writing was, was about Malcolm Lowry, and he was using exactly the same sources as I'd been doing, and it led into... Yeah, I, well, I won't, yeah. Yeah, we won't <laughs> go down that. But well, if we think of a presiding spirit, of course, of yours, J.G. Ballard, he, he wrote uh, very acutely that deep assignments run through all our lives. There are no coincidences. And, and I know that next week you'll be taking a life-size cutout of J.G. Ballard to Toronto. <laughs> yeah. But That's we'll, we'll let us leave that, we'll, we'll, we'll leave that hanging. Um, <laughs> I'd just like to, before we open it out, I'd just like to quote from your quoting of Charles Olson, I take space in capital letters to be the central fact to man born in America from Folsom Cave to now. I spell it large because it comes large here, large and without mercy. And in a sense, everything you've, you've, you've mentioned now uh, around the American writing speaks to that idea of how you occupy that space as a human being um, and make it a place, if you like, to, uh, and primarily the place of writing or uh, not least the place of writing. Well, also, also being there, being in Gloucester, <coughs> And living for a time in this hut, which uh, Vincent Farini, who was a friend and arguing partner of Olson's, occupied as a, as a paint, uh, framer of paintings and prints, you know, gave an astonishing sense of that space, that, that what they were involved with. We, we've seen them in terms of their large issues in, in Olson's ideas about Melville and Olson's ideas, which he engages with in terms of Ed Dawn of the American West, the space, the, the mm. push. Actually, a lot of it came down to what was going on very specifically in Gloucester in terms of buildings being torn down, 
in, in cases of local corruption and so on and so on. And there's a, a writer called Peter Anastas who's edited uh, the, the letters that Olson poured out to the local papers. That, but it begins in the absolutely local. It begins in the fact of his yeah. own town and being able to walk about that town at night and being able to buy stuff and finding places disappearing mm -hmm. and how you deal with that, you know, how you have to fight for every inch of ground that's local to you before you can yeah. open out to the world. And that was a lesson to be in somewhere that was, that was very, very immediate and, and proud of its own locality. Mm. And to find uh, quite elderly people, even older than me, who had been at Black Mountain turning up to a talk there in the museum just because they wanted to, to, to re-engage with that uh, utopian ideal that mm. floated at one period of time. And maybe we can go back to it when they felt very cut off by what was going on there now and the, and the economic collapse and the bite and the, the, the port breakup of the Portuguese community. All of those things were happening. Mm. And it begins just on the doorstep with what's happening on your own street. Absolutely. This is our street. This is our time. Um, who would like to comment and respond, challenge, problematize any of the things that Ian has said? Anything to do with Ian's vast and wondrous body of work? Would anyone like to? Say? Yes, gentlemen here, please. Um, of the uh, of the poets who write uh, in in what you uh, correctly uh, define as open forms, um, who do you think, or what works do you think uh, will will last? <coughs> uh, you mean you mean of the American? Yes, of the, the American <coughs> of the Americans. Yeah. Not really a question. I mean, who, who lasts? Any history is going to tell that. So it's a it's a stab in the dark. But for me, um, Ed, Ed Dawn, I think particularly is is somebody who, who who certainly will last because he he had a such a sharp, bright, acerbic intelligence, and because he was so adept at. at finding an English and a European register as well as having a great sense of the American West. So I, I think he learned a lot from, from Olsen and, and took it to a different place. And I think, I think Olsen is, is, is going to be there, someone uh, to last as a, as a, as a model uh, and as a link and a big argument with, with Ezra Pound and the fathers of modernism and with William Carlos Williams. Um, and obviously... There are numerous other poets within that register who I admire hugely. Uh, uh, whether whether their works last or not, you, we don't know. I mean, it's strange that uh, in America, the collective poems of Ed Dorn has not been cited. I know. I mean, uh, it's very extraordinary. Very extraordinary. I don't understand that at all. I mean, I know he went out of fashion, sort of politically, um, towards the end, but. One, once upon a time, Gunslinger was, was pretty well moving to the, to the center of things. Uh, someone like Snyder has, has, has held on. I, th I think cer certain poets, if you go back to the, the reading in San Francisco, the famous uh, six-gallery reading in which Ginsburg launched Hull, and uh, Snyder was reading Berry Feast, that those, the themes of ecology, the, th the theme of urban apocalypse and meltdown, the, the two things sat there, and they, they, they formed strands that uh, were very, very influential. Uh, Michael McClure, who's read at, at this shop several times, was, was also reading there. 
And I think if you didn't manage somehow to establish an identity, you, you could drop off the map. Because one of the things I'm interested in the book is looking at the people who missed. Uh, people like Lou Welch, who was, who was a great friend of Gary Snyder's and who just disappeared into the forest, uh, leaving a note behind him and was never found. And, and I, when I was with Gary Snyder, I'd, I'd actually forgotten that that took place actually at Gary Snyder's place in Sierra Nevada. And I asked, asked him where it was that Lou Welsh had been. He said, right here, this was his car. I found it, and there was, there was a note in it, and we searched for, for five days, and there was never a sign of him. He just he'd kind of vanished. But, but Lou Welch um, li- lived with difficulty, li- lived with a sense of the impossibility of a role for the poet within that society or how, how much of an outcast he felt himself to be and, and someone like John Wieners as well, who who is much quoted, I think he had that sense of of being an outcast figure. Um, and and you know we can see in in England, I think there are there are tremendous uh, open field poets who learnt a lot from this. People like Bill Griffiths and uh, Alan Fisher obviously applied the same lessons to writing about London and and created huge works which are not really acknowledged still by, by mainstream culture. Mm. Thank you. I mean, I think one of the, one of the issues of, of the book is about poetry as a form of resistance, isn't it? Because, uh, as you say very early on, as, as it becomes ever more obscured by the mainstream drive of the culture and the society, so it becomes ever more necessary, of course, and ever more... Uh, There's the other imperative that comes out of the culture is to, is to as I said, with the Bloomsbury group on a craze, that was sort of mocking version, but there is, a, there is an imperative to try and uh, commodify them mm. so that you get on the road, finally becomes a movie, and it's like a, a travelogue about mm. somebody researching on the road and as, a, as, a, as a documentary about jeans and cars. Mm. And, and, that, and so the lives of them become more and more and more in the public domain, whereas nobody feels the obligation to do the, the hard thing of re- reading the books mm. or reading all the books. Um, and then... They're now massive entities uh, as a projection, but not as a reality. Mm. And I think that that is just one of the one of the facets of life, that that we need to get people who actually take the trouble to go back and see what they were on about, what mm. they what they wrote, what they mm. did, mm. rather than the accidents of the str- William Burroughs shooting his wife and mm. so on and so on. Which mm. is why I was really pleased that you showed the Gary Walkov's Beat film at the Whitechapel Gallery. Mm. Because it is in itself a kind of a poetic recovery. <coughs> I mean, it deals with the, the myths of their lives, but it does it in a way that is sort of uh, awkward and tender in some ways. It's not to do with mm. exploiting the mythology. I mean, you mentioned Test Centre earlier, and, and I suppose this is, uh, is crucial, isn't it? Uh, to Ed Dawn's uh, presence here, to uh, fugitive presses, small presses who, who take the poets on and, and yeah, I mean put the books who, out. Who's publishing Ed Dawn here now before this? Uh, Nicholas Johnson with a very, exactly. very small press now based in Hastings, Etruscan books, you know, who, who sees them. And, and Ed Dawn, a major, major poet, is prepared to put books out through this tiny little English press. Mm. Uh, it's only when Carcanet finally do the big roundup, but that, that's quite a long time afterwards. But one of the one of the moving elements of the book is this idea of a generational relationship. Yourself, much younger, speaking to Ginsburg for Kodak Mantra Diaries, now in the test centre. Same way Ginsburg speaks to Dylan Thomas. You know, there's a exactly. wonderful awkward encounter in in New York when because uh, because Dylan Thomas, who was the first 
poet that I sort of seriously studied and wrote about while I was in school and went to research and meet people who knew him, mm. do all this stuff on my own home ground, uh, the, the figure of America was like a terrible balloon cloud that hung there. There's mm. this guy who went seriously wrong and drank himself to death. But when you get into the detail of it, he becomes the, the prefigure of a lot of the beat generation. He's on the road. He's, he's doing huge numbers of readings. Mm. He's traveling backwards and forwards across the country endlessly. And when he's in a bar in New York, Allen Ginsberg is in there as a young guy and sees him and sort of gets into an awkward, forced conversation with him. And when he's going away in a taxi, sticks his head through the window and puts his tongue out. Mm. Um, how weird. And, and yet that passage, that the link between him and that, and then the Dylan's name passing on to Bob Dylan, mm. you know, the, the links were there. And, and it began in, in, in Wales or with a Welsh poet who had this huge sense of aura and presence mm. reading these poems publicly right backwards and forwards across New York. That started mm. the business of, of public readings that mm -hmm. the Beats later come in on. Anyone else like to comment? Just yes, gentlemen at the back. You might have to project or uh, wait for the mic. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm interested in that idea of connections that you you just mentioned. That uh, there is a, a link between everybody, and I, I haven't read the book yet, and it's on the, you know getting it for a Christmas present. But right at the end, you mentioned about Black Mountain. Uh, so I don't know whether there's anything in the book about Black Mountain, but I've, I've read quite a lot about it, and I wondered whether there was any sense of any connection between people like Cage, Rauschenberg, you know, the, the emigres who ended up at, at Black Mountain, and, and what you're writing about in the book. Yeah, um, <coughs> in fact, Black Mountain uh, appears right on the first page of the book. You won't have to get too far to come across it. It's, uh, where are we? Um, the largest, most light occulting of all the giants of that earlier race was Charles Olson, poet, scholar, last rector of Black Mountain College. This establishment, a scatter of buildings beside a lake in North Carolina, now imploded, bankrupt, seemed to us a Valhalla of all the talents, Joseph Albers, John Cage, Merce Cunningham, William de Kooning, Robert Rauschenberg, Buckminster Fuller, Robert Duncan, Robert Creeley, Ed Dawn. You pick up the traces <coughs> any way you choose through fugitive magazines and literary gossip, and they all lead back to this one place. So um, Black Mountain was com completely central. It was an inspirational idea that, that all of those multiple talents could, could be in one place, even though by the time Olson gets there, it's, it's imploding. It's all economically collapsing. It's in a state of huge creative tension. And... Uh, the, the response to that here is that, that as uh, absurd young poets ourselves, we dreamt about founding some similar thing in, in England. And in the second part of the book, there's a, there's a description of a journey. We go to Cambridge to see Jeremy Prynne and sort of suggest he becomes rector of an English Black Mountain College, <laughs> which he was very uh, obliging and courteous about. And, and now, just this year, we've seen uh, an MIT Press edition come out. The kind of the, the, the sort of the, 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 the tombstoning on one level of, of the Black Mountain project, but also, of course, a huge celebration of an extraordinary moment. I think only had 1,200 students in its entire life. 
Um, very few of them graduated, whatever that might have meant, from Black Mountain College. But of course, the the lineup of of, of alumni and staff mm. was extraordinary. Yeah. And and in the book, when you go when you go to Prin with Chris Bamford, and you talk about this idea, uh, which of course, as you say, doesn't materialise. But the the not yet. The, not yet. Um, the dream, but the dream is so large that in a sense but it, 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 it does sort of occur in, in things like the anti-university exactly. which sets up in Shoreditch you know, the, the similar, similar notions were, were current this idea that you, you bring in all the, all the talents and uh, it, it kind <coughs> of works because the, the economic background to it collapses but for a, for a brief time I think they can generate enormous energy mm. and I think the defining thing in London at the Congress for Dialectics of Liberation where all of these people turn up in Camden Town in the Roundhouse mm -hmm. for a brief period of time was a version of that, was like mm -hmm. a kind of three-dimensional version. Violent arguments, all kinds of absurdities, but nevertheless, the inspiration of that runs on in, in London for a long, long time afterwards. And we're sitting, obviously, in, a, in an important bookshop, and yeah. Camden is the site of, obviously, of perhaps the most important bookshop in your life, Compendium mm -hmm. Books, which brought literally these volumes to the heart of the city and changed the, the, the kind of psychometrics of the culture by, by their presence. And this sense, I suppose, of I, I, uh, which comes through very strongly in the book of, of, of the protagonists, the, the poets, the writers, the artists, and so on, but then crucially the kind of the second, third, fourth ripples, the, the publishers, the recorders, the witnesses, yeah. is a very strong, it's, it's an, a complete ecosystem, isn't it? It has to be, it has to be the complete system or it doesn't work. Mm. Know, the, the, the thing of the, the, the visionary poet or whatever it has to connect up. I mean, it was very interesting <coughs> uh, at the uh, Sea Cadets building again at the weekend. Lee Harwood and Tom Rayworth uh, read with Thurston Moore and a young Scottish woman poet, McGillivray. Mm. Uh, really quite an astonishing span. Mm. And um, Lee Harwood was talking about he had been the manager at Better Books in Charing Cross mm -hmm. Road, which put on readings by Allen Ginsberg, put on... Uh, performances uh, of many extraordinary kinds and used to he used to invite um, penniless poets to actually go away with a bunch of books and sell them up the road to foils you know just to keep themselves alive uh, they, they were an ecosystem and then Lee goes on down to Brighton where public house bookshop was run by Bill Butler and tries to to carry on the same thing there and it, it, it works it's wonderful but it the interpersonal things that are involved in running those kind of bookshops, unless there's some serious financial backing, it, it tends to fall apart in a period of time. And, and Lee Harwood ends up as a counter clerk in a post office, which he prefers mm. because mm. it frees his mind to, to do the important thing, which is his own work. Mm. And yet, here, here he is, you know, at, at someone like poets like John Ashbery are coming to stay in off Brick Lane with Lee Harwood in the early 1960s. Uh, it, it's uh, it's a f it's exciting th mm. those exchanges and uh, and exactly as you say the ripples that come off there, there's somebody like Stuart Montgomery with Fulcrum mm. Press somebody seems to be found to to carry out the, the duty of publishing managing getting the books into the world to the point where in the 1960s Cape Jonathan Cape mm. were prepared to absorb Goliard who was a small press run by Tom Rayworth and you get Cape Goliard you get Cape Editions these tiny little mm. books. Um, being run by the poet Nathaniel Tarr, mm, mm. bringing out, wow, I mean, amazing stru structures of European and American stuff. Mm.
if that doesn't happen, the culture stagnates. Mm. And it did happen at that time. I mean, it, it, just to mention Stuart McCormick, there's a wonderful passage, which I won't spoil for readers, um, about his journey to Las Vegas to see a certain Howard Hughes. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it ends with this wonderful observation that you make, that it was that craziness we used to call the possible. Yeah. And that is, you know, in a sense, the nutshell of the whole project, isn't it? The possible well, remains... Can you imagine now a, a London small press publisher, say, deciding that he's going to go and see Rupert Murdoch to, mm. to get him to denounce his poet, in that case Ed Dawn, mm. in, in his newspaper, so that we could sell a few copies in London of your books. I mean, it... This is the art of the impossible. <laughs> Are there any more questions? Yes. Would like say a few words. Um, hello, sir. Um, I wonder if you could say a few words about your methodology, um, whether you had an itinerary and um, whether you did your reading beforehand or whether the itinerary developed as you went along and the reading uh, as you encountered these books in bookshops on your way. Thank you. Yeah, uh, well, I guess I did the reading uh, about uh, 50 years before I started the journey. So the, re the reading was, was, was my past, was my cultural memory, <coughs> although obviously I, I read afresh at the same time. Um, and the journeys are, are really also the journeys of a lifetime because it, it opens with, a, with a, a relatively current journey when I was invited to go to Gloucester, Massachusetts to give a talk which, which I jumped at because it gave me time to look into the background of Charles Olson whose books I'd all read many, many years ago so the books were read the place was then visited and, and going to the place I had a very uh, uh, firm idea of things I needed to look at and wanted to look at but I also stayed open to the people I met and the, the opportunities that arose through that for example, that in the in the local library there, I didn't realise that that Olson's own books had just gone onto the open shelves of the library, and people were taking out books and discovering annotations by him were still there. And I found a a book about D. H. Lawrence's paintings with unrecorded Olson poems in things like that. So so there was a there was an element of that off the cuff research. There was also an element of knowing what I where I was going to go. But there was also a, a recording of earlier journeys, like in the mid-90s, I, I went for the BBC, did a radio program, Generating the Beats, going to visit Corso, Ginsberg, Burroughs, uh, Berlinghetti, McClure, all of that, and, and recalling that particular journey, which is something that's already happened. And in the big, the big journey this time um, was based around researching in Vancouver and, and traveling down the West Coast, which I didn't know at all. Uh, and as I went, I, I would acquire books and I would uh, meet people and I would, I'd set up already to talk to Snyder and to talk to McClure again in San Francisco and to visit the poet Tom Clark. Certain things were set up. Everything else just unraveled as it unraveled. Oh, I just, I just wanted to ask um, how it was coming back to London, if, if actually all the time before you've been in London. Um, was when I go away, I often find the way I look at where I come from has changed and the contours seem to have changed. And I just wondered how it affected you coming back or how, what you made of it, or when there, maybe. Uh, 
felt good to be back. I think it, it, it was when I'd left. I was I was feeling uh, disgruntled with with a lot that had been going on around me, and I'd, I'd felt embattled in a, in a particular way. And I I thought everything that was happening, in a sense, was was depressing. And then having made this trip and returning, I felt very re-energized by what was on my own doorstep, and I felt much much more optimistic, and I could see things evolving and just taking new forms um, and moving on in an interesting way. And, and the more I've seen and the more I've been doing recently in terms of projects with the 70 film program in places like Hackney Wick and on canals, I'm going to really see sort of life seeping back in, in good ways. Mm. And the, th the sort of things that, that Gareth Edwards is Evans has been in involved with uh, and events in bookshops in Clapton, all, all of that. There's a, there's a real sense of renewal, and so so London became a new place by having having been away. I, th I think that was very good from that point of view. Uh, one one of the pieces I took out of the book was um, uh, a big a big chapter about W. G. Sebald. I kind of felt it was a way of relooking at London. I wanted to trace his journeys through Whitechapel uh, when he was writing Austerlitz by, by the guidance of his friend Stephen Watts, the poet. So I did all that stuff, um, and yet I felt it didn't belong, so it, so it came out of the book in the end and became a, a separate publication. Um, but th this was a kind of a new, a new London by way of having done it. I mean, following on from that and this idea of the cinema project, which for, for I'm sure everyone does know, but Ian was 70 in June and was invited to curate a 70-film program, which will finish just before his 71st birthday next June. And it takes in all sorts of venues, as you said at the beginning, uh, uh, and, and myriad films, uh, and, it's ex and it's an extraordinary project. But, of course, what it does do for, for those of us who are your readers is take us back to your origins in cinema as a filmmaker, as, as, as a, a student who came to London and studied at the London School of Film Technique. That was your reason to come yeah, to the city yeah. in the first place. And it makes us rethink, I think, as Sukhdev Sandhu mentioned in a very good review of this book for The Observer, the origins of uh, experimental writing in avant-garde film. Stan Brackage, yeah, yeah. Kenneth Anger, and many others. Yeah. Well, Stan Brackage, obviously, in particular, was very, very closely associated with Michael McClure, was in deep correspondence with Charles Olson, made portraits of Robert Creeley. Mm. That the, the filmmakers and the poets were, they, I mean, he saw himself as a film poet, quite mm. quite rightly. And you know, I recognised his work very early on as being that mm. and being part of the same living tradition. And and you, I, it took a while to realise that that all of these various elements I was interested in did connect up. That mm. the people knew each other, they interacted, and they'd often collaborated in various ways. But the language of cinema coming into the writing uh, yeah. it, it is really crucial to how you construct literally line by line, isn't it? The idea of the, it, the edit. Could you talk a little bit more about yes, that? Yes, I mean, I think, I, I think actually I learned quite a lot about editing in terms of uh, prose editing mm. by working closely on the four essay fantasy films with Chris Pettit and Emma Matthews. Emma Matthews is a very, very good uh, visual editor mm. in terms of seeing what you take out, I think, you know, the, 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 that something can open up and mm. move and find a necessary shape by mm. slicing stuff out, whereas my impulse is always to pour it all in, pour it all in, and 
huge advances are made when you clean, clean it up. Uh, we, we saw the film Godard's Le Mépris last, last night at the ICA. It was one of the films. And what was interesting was to watch a black and white documentary about the making of the film and realizing how incredibly cluttered everything was in, in reality. Mm -hmm. It was a mess. It was hundreds of people, lots of stuff. And when the, you get the film, it's so spare, so cleaned out. Mm. You've got these bare spaces in which people are together with one piece of statuary, a window, you know, a, a lamp stand. But the art is, is stripping it out so that you get to essence. And mm. I, I'm still working on that. <laughs> but uh, uh, I think also you don't need to be afraid to, to include a lot of, a lot of material as long as, as long as there is, are these organic links that keep it keep it moving mm. it doesn't have to be that sort of a uh, cliffhangery structure and mm. i think we we've got it towards a very banal cross-cutting in, in terms of a lot of writing that's really like soap opera that you have two different groups of people this one gets to a point where you don't know what you're going to do so you move to the other one and you go mm. tick tock tick tock as if there's a very low boredom threshold mm. and you need to keep that form of cutting and i don't think you do mm. and and uh, the the way i've learned is is essentially from cinema mm. i would say completely mm -hmm. thank you very much well, we've probably got time for a couple more questions if anyone would like to yes gentlemen there do do please if you could wait for the microphone thank you I'd like to ask a question about Bolaño. Um, I suppose I just sort of f find it um, surprising to have him in the same book as the, the beat writers. Um, not not sort, of, sort of quickly think of a lot more dissimil dissimilarities than s similarities. And just really what it was that, that made you sort of put him in with them. Um, poetry. No, I, I don't... <coughs> I don't think it has to be similar. I don't think he's a similar kind of writer. I just think he's a, a very interesting figure. And this is not a book about beat writers. This, this is, uh, as we've been trying to say, it's a, it's a voyage into um, a particular territory and um, my own cultural markers over a very long period of time, which included particularly... Kerouac and Ginsburg and Burroughs, but also uh, Dylan Thomas, Malcolm Lowry, and now Bolano. And, and, and the Bolano aspect is to do with, with uh, migration and otherness. It's to do, it comes out of talking to someone in Highgate, but he's talking about a man in exile in Barcelona. And um, when you go back into Bolano, there's, as I said, there's this piece that he, he writes about a character who supposedly meets Charles Olson and is very influenced by him, who he's very satirical about. He doesn't, obviously <laughs> doesn't like Charles Olson very much. But the connections are actually there. Um, and again, Charles Olson is not a beat writer, but he, Kerouac, wants very much to meet Olsen, and that's one of the one of the big kind of climax scenes in the first part of the book is when Kerouac, towards the end of his life, very very drunk and out of it, decides he's got to go and see Charles Olsen and John Updike in one day. <laughs> he never gets further than Olsen, um, and it's a pretty good a fiasco. But the things that you think don't connect really really do. And Milano, I, I was engaged with because simply because I was reading his books quite avidly through the whole period, and he kept 
he kept appearing by way of other people, floated him at me. And I like with him the uh, relation between the reality of the, the, the people he knew, the, the, the characters he's mythologized, and, and the fictive reality, that I'm not sure what the status is, I don't know. And I wanted to reflect that somewhat in the book. Yes, gentlemen there, and then you. Um, you mentioned Nazis here and there, and you use the figure of Albert Speer, and then there's um, the Nazi coins on Burroughs' eyes. C I mean, what is it about Nazis? How do they get into the book? <laughs> How do they get out? You know, it's they seem to be there. <coughs> you know, it wasn't particularly my intention to bring them in. But the story that, that William Gibson told me was so striking, I, was, I, I immediately became haunted by it. And uh, previously, again, um, the Muriel Walker, who's a, a communist, left-wing Jewish figure in, in London, had given me um, diaries of uh, an Italian publisher, which led me into the same world where you, where you found yourself crisscrossing with these these figures and uh, the idea of the walk became quite obsessive to me, the idea of that piece of geography that you walk around while you're in prison that then opens out to become the whole world became a symbol of, of the book and the idea that he, he does create this in huge mad book from it while trying to dissociate himself from his own past and, and uh, instead of that talking about seeing American films and, and reading books by R Robert Walser or whatever. It all, it all, all, it's very strange to know the status of what's going on, which is what I like. In terms of writing this book now and, and meeting and uh, going to the territories of lifelong concerns, what does it mean now in terms of, of, of wrestling with and, and thinking about those influences from now on into future books? They're, well, they're always present. Yeah, I mean, one, I think one book always leads into the possibility of another, or, or not. We haven't reached the end, absolute end game yet. So having done this, um, there's always a sort of slight hook at the end, which mm. suggests ideas that I would like to go into for the mm. next one, mm. which would be much further out again, but would draw on things I've discovered here, people I've known here, um, Every time you finish one, the, the, it's a new map. Mm. The, the, the sheet is wiped clean, although obviously there's a, there's a residue, a burden of stuff that you carry with you. Mm. And I can see now that there's another, another series of journeys or voyages or whatever that would literally come out of this book and couldn't exist without it. Mm. And that's the way it's worked all along. I mean, this, this book is really a, a mirror image of the Hackney book. We've mm. even got the same... Cover the, the design of the cover, mm. which becomes a map, is by the same person. So instead of having that couple of square inches of moss, as, as Lou Welch says, you could read the world from a, an inch of moss on a rock, that you could also open that out to become the world, to become a, a huge new territory that is oceanic, mm. mountain range, this is the, the world vision of ecology that Gary Snyder has. Mm. And the way that all those people on the Pacific Rim look east they're much more connected to Japan and China than they are to mm. what's going on in the other parts of America or in Europe. Mm. So all of those ideas are now cooking, yeah, hopefully, mm. for a, another book. Very good. Well, just before we, we close, um, I'd just like to read a very short poem that uh, was found in Charles Olson's papers 
um, after he died. And, and as Ian says, quoting the poem, a fragment that was the whole. Now I begin to go. Hear me. I have sent you the message. I am gone. And as Ian says, he is going off to the wider journey, to the wider ripple uh, for the next book. But, of course, there are many books of Ian's um, here, as we flagged up at the beginning. The Hydra Breeds, just in front of us here. Um, pamphlets, fugitive publications, official publications, counter-publications, um, all or any of which Ian is very happy now to sign. Um, but before he does that, I'd just like to flag up, of course, that there are more events still in the LRB shop calendar for this year. Um, next week, a, a friend and a fellow traveller of Ian's, Ken, Ken Walpole, will be here with a co-author of Ian's, Rachel Lichtenstein, to talk about the new English landscape, a landscape that we all inhabit, whether we know it or not, a hybrid landscape between the sublime and the post-industrial. Um, a lovely publication to go with that. That's here next Thursday at 7 o'clock. Um, and then after that, we enter the zone of... Um, Mushroom vari not mushroom variations, what am I talking about? Mustard variations, <laughs> not that far from mushroom. I mean, mushrooms have many variations, but <laughs> mustards have many, and apparently we, we, we can sample those at a number of uh, late openings uh, on the 4th, the 11th, and the 19th of December, where food and drink will be available. 10% off will also be available on, on all purchases, and um, bark-style mustard variations will be sampling um, themselves, and we can sample them as well, should we wish to on those dates, the 4th, the 11th, and the 19th of December. But before then, of course, do please join me in thanking all the LRB shop staff for enabling this event, but, of course, Ian Sinclair for sharing his thoughts with us. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.